This is the Game Changers podcast where your hosts, Associate Professor of Education and Enterprise, Philip Cummins. And predominant educational thought leader, Adriana De Prado. Well, the Game Changers podcast aims to not only put a spotlight on the innovative ideas shaping the landscape of the 21st century schooling, but to enter into a deep dialogue with those brave pioneers, the true game changers in education. Those individuals that don't want or wait for permission. Leaders in education who are actually courageous enough to make real change in their learning community as they foster the growth of each young person in their care to ultimately thrive in a new world environment. These are going to be their stories. Well, I'm really excited to introduce our game changer today, Peter Hutton, founder of the Future Schools Alliance. The Future Schools Alliance is a collective of member schools who support each other to deliver innovation that will shape the evolving future of education. Peter is also the former principal of the much-heralded Templestowe College in Melbourne, Australia, where he led a renaissance in what schooling looks like. Peter has been a strong advocate for challenging the hidden grip of the status quo in schooling and a true game changer for having revolutionised how schools operate and how students learn during his time at Templestowe, and he continues this wonderful dynamic work through FSA and the member schools. Welcome, Pete, and g'day, Phil. G'day, Adriano. Hello, Pete. How are you, Phil? Lovely to, uh, to meet you and good to talk to you again, Adriano. So we're going to launch straight into our very first question, Peter, and thank you again for, for giving us of your time. And it's, it's a pretty straightforward one that we've asked every single one of the Game Changers so far, and that is, tell us a little bit about your story and how did you get to where you are today? Uh, I guess it depends how far you want to go back, but um, probably the motivation started because I had such an appalling time in school myself. Uh, from the moment I left, I swore I'd never come back and uh, somehow entered the profession uh, about uh, eight years later and haven't left for the last 30. So uh, that was the, the backstory. Um, initially in education, fairly um, standard progression through there. I actually did uh, 15 years in the independent system mm -hmm. and, uh, and then moved into the, into the state system. But probably the most um, noteworthy time is the last eight years where I was principal of Templestowe College, which, to be honest, was a, uh, it was a school on the, on the brink of closure and uh, down to 256 students and 23 year sevens, which was a bit of a shock on arrival because I was told there were 440. Um, and in the space of eight years, uh, grew that community to uh, 1,100 students and uh, was recognised by 100, uh, the Finland organisation as one of the most innovative uh, projects in the world. It's really exciting. Can you talk a little bit about uh, what was that transition like into your role as principal of a school of such a, a low student population? And clearly that would have impacted upon the psychology of everyone involved in that particular space in terms of the hope for the future. How did that how did that first few kind of years feel in, in that transition? Yeah, uh, it's, an, it's an interesting one, Adriano and, and Phil, and I'm actually writing a book currently on that experience, um, which has been cathartic and traumatic uh, <laughs> going through those early times. I was reflecting that I'd actually applied for 30 principalship positions. So I was moving from uh, having been an assistant principal, I think, for, for 15 years at that point in, in two schools, one independent and one state. And I uh, was trying to move from the Loddon Mallee area out near Gisborne to the, uh, the eastern suburbs, the effluent part of Melbourne. And, uh, oh, sorry, uh, uh, no, that's not quite right, but... Um, 
Maybe, maybe, maybe affluent. <laughs> I think I might, might have been, been right, right the first time. The affluent part of Melbourne. Thank you. Thank you for that correction. Um, but it's very, it's actually really hard to get into the eastern suburbs because when uh, when leaders get a position there, they sort of die in saddle because it's a pretty good area of the world, certainly, um, uh, certainly in, in in the educational setting. Um, and so when I uh, I I actually got the gig, I think it was only because nobody else wanted it. Uh, it had twice been told to close by uh, Jim Waterston, the the regional director at the time, said that it wasn't viable. But the college council were incredibly obstinate and they said, we think we've got one more role. And so the interview process basically collected, it was basically a pitch. Um, you had to pitch your vision for the future and, and their assessment was, did they like the vision and could you sell it? And uh, luckily enough, got the gig. Um, initially tried to uh, to just run a really high, high class traditional um, educational environment. But frankly, the area was saturated with with them, uh, one of which was your previous uh, school, Adriano Marcelin, and trying to compete with our sort of funding when you when you've got numbers at that level just wasn't going to wasn't going to cut it. And uh, so we thought, well, who who whose needs aren't being met at the moment? And there was a large number of students who who just really you know weren't getting a lot out of the traditional system. So that that was what sort of set about that uh, set about that journey. Um, it's all very well to look back now with a sort of a romantic lens and say, yeah, it was, you know, great from the start. Uh, I had a recurring nightmare for the first two years uh, of giving the final address to the, to the school community and, you know, saying, uh, you know, we'd all put in a great effort. We've all tried really hard. We've done, you know, we've had a great time, tried some interesting things, but it just hadn't made it. And uh, I had that nightmare probably several times a week for the first two years. Um, Peter? Jeff Southworth, in his research on English school principalship and leadership in general, talks about the importance of optimism and hopefulness as an essential quality of a leader in a school. How did you maintain your optimism and how hard was it to keep those people around you optimistic under those circumstances? Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting question, Phil. Um, I, I probably oscillate, you know, little uh, unnaturally between highs and lows, and so it was really important when I was in a in a low patch to to make sure that I wasn't around people too much, um, because there were some times where I just thought, no, this is this is going under, and um, you know, the thing that always still lifts me is, you know, if if I just wasn't in the headspace and and it was just wrong, I would. I would just go into classes and spend time with young people and that would sort of rejuvenate me and remind me what it was all about. And, you know, whether it lasted just for another few months or, you know, a few years, we were going to make the biggest difference we could. So that was one thing. Um, the other, the other thing was I had an amazing um, assistant principal, uh, Sally Holloway. And, you know, I used to, I dubbed her Pollyanna. Um, and whenever, you know, I would often say in those first times, oh, if only I'd been here like 12 months earlier, we could have done this. And she's gone, do it now. And I've gone, I can't do that. We've only got one term, Sally, before the year starts. I can't abolish year 10 and, you know, um, and, and, and uh, combine, you know, seven, eights and nines in the space of the term. And she goes, do it anyway. You know, like she was, her, her fearlessness 
for what the community could cope with was far beyond mine. And she was very much in many ways, my backbone in those early things to, to do some things that were just, you know, insanely short time frames. Right. So let's jump forward then nearly a decade. You've gone from leading a school to establishing an organization, which you term as an alliance, which works with many member schools. Yeah. And you're in a similar sort of situation, but we've now got scale. You've got many of the same sorts of challenges around belief and systems and broken models and things not working and so on. Can you tell us about the idea of an alliance and what it does and how you support educators and schools to make this whole next practice thing happen? So just to give you a little bit of history of how the Alliance happened, um, I was having a, a, a meal with Yong Xiao, Professor Yong Xiao, who has been an enormous supporter of TC, you know, from, from about two years into its journey. And I think it was 2010 or 2011 that, that he kindly offered to come in and, and assist with our school review. And, um, you know, six years on, you know, things were going pretty well. We were doing some interesting things. We, we had no more year levels. Um, there were no compulsory subjects in the school. We had 80 businesses operating from ideation to operation. We were employing 10% of our own students to help run the school. They're just some of the, the noteworthy aspects. We had students on staff selection committee, on every committee of management within the school. You know, we were doing some interesting things. And his comment to me was, is this going to be a little um, blip on the history of Victorian education, a little skyrocket, you know, burst into flame and then fade to grey and, and not make any change? And, and his comment to me was, you know, one school's great, but, you know, more schools is better. And I really took that to heart. And even though I still loved my role and I really, you know, part of me, my human self regrets uh, having given that up because like I was never as fulfilled to be honest as as working with that community who were just amazing by the end of that you know six year period um, but I looked around and I, I could see that the school was till still tied too closely to me as an individual and um, and were I to have left immediately it would have thrown the place into chaos and inevitably it would have I would suggest regressed back towards the norm so we, you know, he was the one that prompted me on um, on starting this Future Schools Alliance, and the and the concept that we is that we would have ten schools that we worked with closely. So I enlisted, um, or first of all, we advertised for a co-principal. So we were, other than the Bridgetine nuns, to my knowledge, we were the only school that had co-principals. So two people genuinely running the strategic directions. Mine was focused strategically outside. And uh, Peter Ellis, who ended up being the, the incoming uh, substantive principal, he was the um, co-principal who was strategically focused inside. And so we reached out to another four schools and we became an alliance um, of, of five schools. And we did that as a bit of a trial. Um, I, I may have had some control issues, you be the judge, but uh, I think I'd been on every uh, staff selection panel and done almost all the enrolment interviews since the school started and so I made a point to step back so that the community didn't have a, an opportunity to imprint on me so I, I did virtually no public events um, didn't do any enrolments didn't do any um, staff appointments 
because I needed them to sort of get a bit of a separation. Um, I think that worked really well and I, you know, I got what I asked for and that was that we left, I left with pretty much um, without a, you know, too much um, uh, instability creation in the school. Um, our aim was to have 10 schools by the end of 2018 and when you leave a school like TC and, you know, it's got a little bit of a profile, people said, what are you doing? And I said, well, we're starting this Future Schools Alliance. It's an alliance of schools. It's not a, it's not a consultancy. It's not a model where we do things to people. It's a model where we actually work with them uh, to support their journey. And um, the aim was to have 10 schools in 12 months. We had 10 in two and a half weeks. And so then, uh, then we had this mad scramble to try and work out what we're actually doing with them uh, and onboard them. And, the, you know, like the leadership teams of those schools were just incredibly tolerant and generous as we were sort of working out how to do that. Um, when I say we, uh, the co-founder of FSA is a fellow called David Runge, who's got a very strong background in futures foresight methodology, which is a, a, uh, it's a really well-documented methodology that helps move forwards uh, so that you move towards a desired future. You don't just end up in, you know, in the future that, that life throws to you. Um, and he's been, you know, together we've, uh, we've built this. So we ended up with 25 schools at the end of the first year. Um, by the end of the second year, we had 50 schools. Uh, and we've just entered the third year and uh, coronavirus, um, if, we, if we don't have too much interruption from that, the aim is to have 100 schools by the end of this year. So if there are any school leaders out there who are interested, not in, not in being done to, because we're certainly not trying to create little TCs and Adrian would be the, Adriana would be the first one to acknowledge that that's not how we work with schools. Um, but we just want to support each person on their journey because a lot of leaders feel incredibly isolated as soon as they break from the mainstream pack. Uh, at the end of this uh, conversation, we'll, we'll give you an opportunity to um, share with our listeners the web address and all those type of things so they can get in touch with you to learn more about it. But I, I want to just extend this kind of uh, questioning a little bit further. So FSA have developed eight school kind of transformational principles. Mm. And um, can you share perhaps with our listeners a little bit about how these were developed and how they are now utilised with those member schools. Sure. So when you, uh, when you start something as audacious as a Future Schools Alliance, it's good to have some idea of what you're aiming towards. And whilst I had my, my own particular thoughts on what, that, what those sort of factors would be, I, I felt that it was good to you know, go out to some other experts. And I'd been very fortunate in, in the last eight years to come across some, some very connected and impressive doers and thinkers. So basically we selected uh, 15 um, thought leaders nationally and 15 thought leaders internationally. And basically, if you can think of the biggest name, we went out to them. Um, initially, we, we didn't get a great response because they said that if their name was put to it, basically they wouldn't take part because they'd, they'd need to sort of really think about it to the degree they just didn't have time. So we went out a second time and said, look, we'll guarantee you anonymity um, if you give us a response. And some people were incredibly generous and basically I think Reed Badge, their PhD, sent that off. Um, others, you know, it was clearly a couple of uh, jottings on the, on the back of a table napkin from a restaurant. Um, and we, we, we basically gave them one question, and that is, if you were doing education from the start, what, what are the design principles? What are the things that would define 
a truly transformational education system. And um, we didn't say give us six or five, you know. Uh, and when the when the data came in and we sat down to analyse it, it was amazing how how easily it sort of fell out. Right. And then, you know, you wouldn't say that you know it's a totally cohesive um, package of things, but it was you know together. I think they hang together amazingly. So you know, the first of those is flexibility. You know, flexibility in in everything, uh, almost without exception. Um, and, and the second was deep integration with community. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, with all our talk of 21st century skills and goodness me, there are so many think tanks working out how to teach it and how to assess it. If you actually teach in such a way that you've got deep integration with community, you don't actually need to teach it um, uh, in, a, in a traditional sense because you just can't help, kids can't help doing it as adults can't when you're implementing that sort of education system. People are just doing it. It's the best way to develop things. So that was, that was the, uh, the second. The, the, the third um, is success for all, you know, that, um, that we actually wanted, um, you know, young people to, uh, no matter what their background that, and no matter what their particular aspiration, um, that they could, they could go after that. Okay. So I just want to push that now to, yeah. to this to this question. So then what do you believe is the purpose of schooling in today's world? The purpose of schooling. I, I guess it's an interesting question and you know I've I've tried to define this because schooling shouldn't exist in its own sake. It has to be meeting a basic need. Um, you know, we don't have a right to have our own industry just because there's a whole lot of people employed in it. Um and, and so I, I guess in some ways it's to provide support for each young person to find their particular passion, their direction in life. And there are some advantages to having high quality adults, which is one, another one of the uh, design principles, working alongside those young people. That's, a, that's the fourth design principle. Um, that, you know, that if you have people who are there, and I, I think the model has well and truly moved on from teachers of theory to, you know, um, guides for young people, working alongside them and helping them find their individual strengths yeah. and, and then building them into, into, into passions. So if, uh, if one of the assumptions that sits behind the whole podcast series is that the model that we have for education is broken, not that the people who are in it are broken, but the mo but that but that the model is no longer fit for purpose. Uh -huh. And we're looking at schools where we've got adults working side by side, where we've got co-constructed learning, students yeah. are feeling empowered, core skill development, development of self, and which and and for for the listeners, I've just worked through the other principles of the Future uh -huh. Schools Alliance, and with all of the other things that you're talking about, Peter, do we need a revolution or evolution in schools to bring about this fundamental change? Two, two things I'd like to touch on there, Phil, if I might, is firstly, there is no question that the system is not fit for purpose. Like that, that's a given as far as I'm concerned. You can't have the degrees of men. And, and the other point, which you made um, beautifully, is that it's not that the people inside are broken. I think teachers and, well, not only teachers, all educators, all staff in schools, on on the whole, are just working so hard. Yeah. You know, I, I admire their, their efforts enormously, but I can't help but think of that we're actually, we're doing the wrong work sometimes, you know, that's taking up huge amounts of time on stuff that just doesn't 
impact as much as it might on young people. Um, you know, you only have to look at the fact that one in five people in, in Australia, which is the wealthiest country, according to median wealth in the world, when we still have around one in five young people not finishing and the disastrous outcomes for, you know, our Aboriginal uh, and Torres Strait Islander students, um, you know, the mental health issues, all of those things, we can't possibly say that it's fit for purpose. Even if it was doing well with the other 80%, that alone would disqualify it as a, as a viable system. You know, when you've got 26 million people, you need every young person to be a success you know, both in their own mind as well as, and, and heart, as well as, you know, economically. And we get too hung up in education on the economic outcomes, not, a, not enough about the personal outcomes. My theory is if you get the, the heart and the head right, all those other things, all the financial, you know, um, sides of things will, and, you know, employment and, and pathways will, will take care of themselves. Um, so how do you move from one to the other? You know, and I've, you know, I started something called the Ed Revolution many, many years ago. I said, I don't want to lead it. I'm happy for somebody to have a coup and take it over and take the reins. I'm very happy to be a 2IC or a 5IC or a 100IC. I don't, you know, it's not for me. But unless, until somebody else stands up and claims it, you know, somebody's got to, to just say that we need, um, you know, revolution. Um, I've tried for revolution. It, it turns some people off. And um, so we've sort of backed that down, I guess, in some ways to evolution. But you look at something like this coronavirus, which is very obviously very topical at the moment, something like that could actually rejig the system. Like it has the potential to rejig the system when, you know, like I have no doubt that all these poor kids who are, who are going to be subjected to online learning uh, in the next few weeks, are going to be just given electronic worksheets or the equivalent for the vast majority of their work. But, but eventually, and you know, our best teachers will start to use the technology in the ways that it could. And it really could open up possibilities that you know, young people don't need to be in a box for six hours a day, 200 days a year, that you know, perhaps they might still need some time in the, in the box, but they can be out there in the community and still accessing some of their online learning. And, to be honest, once they get a taste of it, it's going to be pretty hard to put that genie back in the bottle. Yeah, and I also think, it, though, it's fair to say, Pete, that uh, there are educators right now, particularly in this country, that have been doing remote learning exceptionally well, that it's not just some kind of worksheet to navigate through, that they're actually engaging and interacting with students in co-producing kind of outcomes and, and, and using the principles of project-based learning, even through a digital platform. Uh, so I don't want to dismiss that there are some great Australian educators and around the world who are doing remote learning uh, probably really well. And in some ways, what might happen as a result is coronavirus and, and having young people be at home might actually start validating to them why what they've been doing has been so significant in meeting kind of a personalised approach to, to learning that's going on. I, uh, I'm really going to just draw a huge amount of heat by this next comment, but I've, you know, I'm, as you know, I'm not averse to that. If somebody's doing it, I would like to know about it and I will help broadcast what they're doing, okay? Because yep. of all the things that I've seen, even with remote learning, don't get me wrong, PBL is great and all of those sorts of things, but it's still, to be honest, is reinforcing an old model where somebody else is setting the journey for, for other young people. And, you know, like, if it's out there, please contact me, right? Peter at Hutton.Education and let me know and, and if it's indeed shattering the paradigm of control, then I'm, I'm all for it and I'll, I'll embrace it and I'll, 
broadcasted as much as I'm capable of. I'm very much looking forward to... I'm actually yet to see people challenging that paradigm of, you know, uh, teacher as as, um, basically guided facilitator and and changing the paradigm to where young people are going on their journey. And and see, like, even, even that, even just that little discussion there, we're still presupposing... That, that it's the teacher sort of is the one to help. Whereas, you know, a true online learning community, students would be learning from each other. You know, like one of Yong Zhao's favorite comments is, Peter, there's still too many teachers in this place. You know, like young people can teach young people and young people can teach teachers. Show me that model, right? Yeah. Find me that model in, in education where, where the young people are as much teachers as they are learners and and you and i guarantee you if you went down that pathway you'd find some enormously engaged young people doing amazing things that no educator actually thought that they might do when they designed the program i have a peter i have a um uh, uh something uh, a theory around uh, around this which is you know we know from we know from the data that most kids age between 11 and 15 the thing they're looking forward to every day at school is lunch and and part of the reason is that that's the environment that you're talking about. It's in the unstructured environment where you've got kids interacting with kids, either doing social learning or recreational learning or co-curricular. That's where they're self-organising. And I, I reckon that's why they, they enjoy it so much, because it, it, it gives them voice, it gives them agency, it attends to their social need and it allows them to learn and it's not being done to them. I, I'm I'm really looking forward to you being inundated with uh, emails, Pete. Of, oh of, no! Of, of I in- know. I'm thinking of some of the people that I've yeah. just offended. And I don't I don't think it's about offending them. I think it's more about them just wanting to say, you know, actually, Peter and Adriana and Phil, it's happening. And uh, and and I think there are some very bright individuals out there who have been co-producing learning with their students for quite some time now, and in fact have given over control to their to their students in so many ways. I just look forward to hearing those stories. Well, let's celebrate them together, like honestly, because that's that could be the new model of where it's going. And please, if if that is you, don't be offended. Just get in touch with me, and you know, perhaps we can support one another in this journey. Because what we're doing at the moment, I tell you, who is fantastic is some of the homeschooling um, people. Yeah, honestly, they like they they have got this stuff down, and it's not surprising. I, I think my last uh, count was that there were five thousand secondary homeschooled uh, young people in um, in Victoria, and that number's on the climb. And again, that's further evidence that the current system's not working. And you know, it's just a pity that that you know, in order to be one of those five thousand, you've you've sort of got to have parents that are, have got the capacity to support that or willingness to support it you know some of the kids that really need an exit pass from school can't get it i want to just shift the conversation now a little bit back to uh fsa part of your focus uh, in recent times has been around culture and growing agile and adaptive learning communities why is this significant for times of uncertainty and constant change why um in I read something interesting that in times of low change, we value tradition, we value uh, older people because they they were the Google of the past. Yeah. You know, when when 
change is happening, there comes a little bit of a balance and we tend to value, you know, people in their early middle age because they can sort of, they've got some experience, but they're also adaptable. In times of high change, we've actually got to value the young. And it doesn't mean that we, that we uh, you know, throw the old people on, on the proverbial scrap heap, but the young actually have enormous capacity to help move us through um, you know, these times of exponential change. And with adaptive cultures, um, which is the, one of the, uh, the frameworks that the FSA is, is uh, developing uh, with, the, um, with an adaptive cultures community that's already existing in, in corporate, and they're, they're wanting to do something a little bit philanthropic, is moving away from this um, polarised situation where leaders talk about people being on board or not on board. Mm. You know, like, you know... Are they buy in or not? Yeah. Are you on, you know, have you bought in? Are you on the bus? Are you on the boat? Yeah. All of these metaphors, which basically, you know, polarise people. Um, whereas what we're now moving towards is building these things called deliberately developmental organisations where it doesn't matter if you're the principal, it doesn't matter if you're, a, you know, a student in year seven. I don't know why we're still referring to year levels, but that's the current paradigm. Um, it doesn't matter if you're the maintenance person uh, a graduate student, everyone knows what their growth edge is and they also know what the shadow side of their current behaviour is and they're, and they're moving forwards at a sustainable pace. Because when you put that dichotomy, what inevitably ends up happening is that the leadership tend to spend an inordinately, an inordinately large amount of their time watering the rocks you know, uh, as they would term it, you know, working with those people who are not on board or making their life so uncomfortable that they, that they leave. And, they, and they're not actually extending the people who are, inverted commas, on board either. Um, so, you know, we've got to acknowledge that no matter where you are in the organisation, be it student or staff member, you're there as a result of your backstory. Now, that's how you got there. And no doubt it's a probably quite a logical reaction to all that you've experienced. And so rather than this sort of sense of judgment of who's on board and who's not, you know, it's looking at what is their growth edge? What do they need to do to add to the organisation moving towards its desired outcomes? And when you do that, it, it can be a sustainable change because if you put too much change on people too quickly, yeah. you know, ultimately they just bunker down and, you know, dig in, so to speak. And retreat. Peter, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in something that you've advocated for in your work in the past that you wouldn't do again and why. Let me be clear. We made lots of mistakes going, going along this pathway. So it was by no means a, you know, one success after another. It was, it was innovate, fail, readapt, um, you know, try again. Um, probably I didn't understand, like we, in, our, in our current work, we would say that there are three key levers for change, um, you know, to change culture. And one is the development of yourself as an individual. One is the development of relationships, you know, in all ways, shapes and forms. So relationship between adults and staff, staff and staff, student and student, parents, staff, etc. cetera. Um, and then the final one, which is the, you know, the, the lever of organisation, structure, process, all the things, buildings, et cetera. And my flaw, or certainly one of the flawed understandings I had, I was pretty good at pulling that third lever, but I didn't direct enough attention to the development of individuals um, or the development of relationships. So particularly, you know, we were talking about those first two years, how hard they were. I, I regret um, that I probably 
um, exerted too much conscious direction. I made life quite uncomfortable for a number of people um, that if I had my time over again, I probably would have backed off on that. But it's it, again, it's one of those things that you look back in hindsight. You know, I, I genuinely felt at the time, had we not gone as hard and as fast as we had, we may well not have had a school. So, so can I ask you on the flip side of that, what's something you're looking forward to doing more of in your work over the next period of time? Um, getting out of my house and not be uh, limited <laughs> by this current. <laughs> uh, I, think, I think that's all of us actually. Yeah. What am I looking forward to doing? Um, I would love the FSA to, I would love the leaders and that's at all levels, teachers, even students in FSA schools to take a more active role in guiding and leading the FSA so that it became a little less about the conveners keeping things going. And if people could just give 3% of their time to the, to the collective and they do look, some people are incredibly generous, but if every member of the Alliance gave to that, that would, that's what I would love to see because, you know, if it's a consultancy, we're not being, we're not charging enough. Um, and frankly, it's just not what we want to do anyway. You know, we want, we want to empower schools to take their lead in their direction. Not, not like everybody else. There's no suggestion that, you know, of conformity here, but I would love the schools to, to take on more responsibility for running the organization for changing the face of education. And then I would love to spend some more time in schools, working with young people, be that as a volunteer, et cetera, because like, to be honest, that's why you go into education um, to, to support young people. And they keep us young because they don't make me feel as old. I think that um, I think this vision of going forward, Peter, is is quite inspiring because it's about harnessing that kind of collective wisdom that's been cultivated. Totally. And there is such great innovation that you're experiencing in these schools. Who, who, who have really subscribed to not just pockets of programs, but kind of holistic change, the way they manage their people, the way they bring them along, the way they support their culture. Um, and you've been able to witness that. So I think uh, this kind of new vision is really exciting. For, for our listeners, I want to give them full disclosure. And that is, uh, I was at a school previously where we were, we, and that school still remains to be a member of FSA. And, and I remember... Uh, the great benefit that I gained from the partnership with FSA, particularly because of your mentorship. And I just want to share a quick story with our listeners and that will lead them into a, a question that I have for you. There was, a, there was a, a Zoom actual meeting that I had with you and another one of my colleagues as we continue to kind of unpack some of our strategic direction going forward in the implementation of Polaris, this kind of brand new learning ecosystem that uh, continues to be, to be rolled out today. And I'm really excited for that bullying community. One of the things that you challenged myself and my colleague was, was around how we kind of defaulted to referring to the young men in the school as boys. And from that day on, it really resonated with me quite deeply, you see, because we use that term boys as a single sex boys school as a term of endearment. But what I loved about your questioning of that and your challenging of that was when you presented to us the alternative and the alternative was to refer to them as young men, you were sharing with me and my colleague and of course, the broader school community, what the aspiration and outcome was as opposed to what it currently was. And I tell you what, there'll be a lot of boys' schools right now that would benefit from that kind of forward thinking because if we, if we keep 
settling on boys will be boys, our mindset will be, we're going to give them a bit of an out every time they behave that way, as opposed to the aspiration of a young man, because that brings a completely different responsibility. So my question to you is this, what are the questions that matter now as schools undertake challenge, the challenge of transformation? What are the key questions that, that leaders should be asking their community? I guess what I would say, I don't see this as hugely complex. Like I know it's a complex space, but the question is easy. Who is this not working for? And it's that simple question. Who is the current system not working for? And it doesn't mean that the student that's getting a great result, because you can get a 99 and coast it in and really you know, nowhere near be reaching your potential. And your potential is not a 99.95. Your potential is what else can you contribute to your community? How else do you interact with friends? All of those sort of things. So it's not you know, just like um, looking at your, your students who are not performing on the academic measure. But who is school not working for? And it doesn't have to be all of them. Like if you've got a school and it's working for... 60% and I reckon they'd be going to find a school that's working for more than 60% but allow those students to continue at the moment doing what they're doing we don't have to do this is one of the underlying assumptions that's wrong in in education is that we have to treat all young people the same way mm-hmm. you can have parallel pathways and you know you and I have discussed this Adriana yeah, yeah. that um, you know just work with those kids for whom it's not working You know, one of the things that leaders always say is, oh, the parents won't be on board and things like that. If you have a young person in your home for whom school's not working, you want change. Yeah. You you desperately want change because you know that the current system's not working. All right. No doubt you've tried tutoring, you've tried counselling, you've tried everything else. You need a different pathway. So what I say to schools is, who is this not working for? Identify those kids, right? Identify them by name and start having conversations with them about what that could look like. And whether that means that you develop, you know, you might have a school of a thousand, develop an alternative learning unit, or, and I'm not talking about like Gumnut Cottage here, I'm talking about something yeah. that you give high, two high quality teachers to, and I can, I can show you how to do it if anyone's interested. But just work with those kids for whom the current system is not working. And then what you'll find is you've got a little hub of innovation happening within your school setting and teachers can move in and out of it and watch what's happening. And they're going, my goodness, that young person did nothing in my class, has done nothing in the school for yeah. two years. Look at what they're capable of. And, and you, you've got a little lab to set up there and it will cost, that's the other thing, innovation doesn't have to cost more money. Watched Q&A the other night, furious at this discussion about, you know, funding and who's getting this money and who's getting that money. I can tell you that we don't need any more money in education. We just need a new model. And at TC, we were, we were on an $11 million budget and we were running a million dollar surplus. All right. And that's because we didn't have this crazy notion that we batch kids according to how long it is since they were born. Yeah, you know, and by doing that, we ran larger class sizes. We had plenty of money. We had great equipment. The buildings were still shabby and falling around, falling down. But um, you know, in in terms of cost to run, if you run a truly innovative program and you empower students to design their own learning, you can actually you know do it well within the budget. And we got not an extra dollar of funding from any source. The 
the interesting uh, experience that Phil and I are having having these conversations with various uh, game changes as we have, have um, titled them is the consistent thread with uh, a quote from Lucy Clark, the, the author of Beautiful Failures, which you're very familiar with. And in her book, she writes, I want a school run by people who believe that every child has the ability to succeed in their own individual way. What we are hearing more and more from the people that we've been engaged with in, in the last few weeks as we record each of these episodes and eventually we'll start releasing them is this huge movement towards exactly what you've just discussed there, a highly personalized kind of learning encounter for every individual. It's almost like a bespoke type of approach, but that involves adults really listening to what the needs are of those individual students are and those young people because everyone's circumstance is completely different. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how at TC, at Templestowe College, under your leadership and that of the staff and the students, personalised learning was the norm? So it's interesting there, Adriano, and you know I'm not adverse to picking people up on language, but it requires more than teachers to listen to students. It actually needs to require them to stop doing things to students. You know, like, whose learning is it? You know, who walks away at the end of the 13-year process and why, again, why 13 years based on old neuroscience of plasticity that was disproved 40 years ago? Yeah. Um, but, you know, when, when that young person walks away with that education, their teacher's not going to be there to hold their hand or teach them the skills in life that they should have developed, you know, as an adolescent. But they weren't because they were doing trigonometry or, you know, calculus. Sorry, I shouldn't pick on maths. I teach maths. But, um, you know, it's a a lot of useless things that we teach kids but but we we fill their lives with this meaningless stuff just keeping them busy on the on the rat treadmill the model of education that we developed at tc was called the take control model you'll notice it wasn't a passive thing wait to be offered control and then take it in the to the degree it's been offered it yeah. was actually take control you know, reach out and grasp it because it's your education, just like we've actually seen happen in the health sector. So, you know, it used to be that the doctor was like God and, you know, they said, have your leg off and you, and you did. Um, you know, now with Dr. Google and, you know, to be honest, it was also because doctors were being sued too much for taking control, whereas if they asked the patient what they would like to, to have happen, then, then there's less likelihood of that. But we need to emancipate students. We literally need to emancipate students and their families and we become the catalyst that helps speed up the reaction. We connect them to resources that they don't know, but we've got to stop thinking of ourselves as the ones in charge of that process. Peter, it's been, a, it's been tremendous um, uh, trying to bottle all of your enthusiasm and passion for an education that, uh, that befits the dignity and humanity yeah. of every student today. It's, it's really inspiring uh, listening to you and sharing ideas with you. One final question. What's the next challenge for you? What's the next contribution that you want to make? Oh, goodness, Phil, you ended with a hard one. Um, <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm a history teacher. We always end with a hard one. What's the contribution I want to make? I actually want to stop making a contribution. I want other people to start making a contribution, frankly. And that's not to say that, that they're not at the moment, but I think I actually don't want it to be about me. I want all people to be challenged who are listening to this now. Don't 
you, you can be too educated. You can listen to too many podcasts. Sorry, guys. You know, you can, you can read too many articles. You can attend too many conferences. And all it does is ends up teaching you that you're not the one that can make a change. You find a thousand ways that you can do it wrong rather than, you know, like I stepped out in naivety and did a lot of the things that we did at TC. And, and you know, and I think sometimes that's why it worked. If I'd, if I'd done all the research and, you know, helps being dyslectic because it was pre-text-to-speech days, so I didn't have as much access to that stuff. But, you know, just get out and do things. So to flip your question, I don't want to do anymore. I want, I want to work with other people that want to do things. And, um, and if we can inspire people to do that, then that's great. That's, it. that's exactly where we want to be too. That's why we're enjoying these sorts of conversations so much. Um, Peter Hutton, thank you so much for your time. Um, keep going. Before we finish off, do you want to share with our listeners uh, uh, the web address for FSA? Yep. Look, it, it isn't the Future Schools Conference. That is a totally separate organisation. We are futureschools.education. So www.futureschools.education. Um, we do have a, uh, a weekly update that has some interesting stuff in it. Feel free to sign up with that. Um, but yeah, look, let's get in there and, and make a difference in our schools. Thank you very much for your time today, Pete. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Phil and Adriano. Cheers. Game Changers is a podcast for those who want to change the game of school, produced by Samuel Wiseman for Mordor Productions. Tell your friends and don't forget to subscribe.